All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 20th day of November 2018. And I do want to remind you, I publish a newsletter that focuses primarily on gold and silver precious metals mining stocks, not exclusively, but mostly, on companies that some of which are uh, talked about on this show, uh, companies that I believe have the tremendous potential uh, to, to create a lot of, to find and discover a lot of wealth in the ground. Basic wealth creating industry is what mining is. We need more of it in the United States, and a lot of the companies that I follow are do have projects in the U.S., um, but I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of excitement for the uh, in the future, and I think Michael Oliver, who will be with us in a minute or two, may uh, provide some also some ammunition in that regard. Uh, Chen Lin, I like to always remind you of his newsletter, ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com is where you need to go to sign up for what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling, and Michael Oliver's uh, MSA, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, for his structural. Uh, momentum and structural analysis, and he does provide a lower cost, $299 a year uh, subscription for people interested primarily in the precious metals and the precious metal stocks. And thank you to all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America business channel. We also like to hear from you. Uh, send your questions, comments, criticisms, or comments of any kind to questions for taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, taylor at gmail. Dot com. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors because without them we would not have a show. Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, uh, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. are the sponsors for this week's show. I would like to mention a friend of mine, David Jensen, uh, who keeps track of the metals markets very closely, pointed out to me that palladium is in a very severe backwardation. There does seem to be a shortage of, of uh, palladium on the markets. Uh, Russia and South Africa are the primary producers. They produce uh, 80% of all the palladium. Uh, there does seem to be a shortage. The price has spiked. It's come back a bit today, but it's a very strong price. And I did an interview with David uh, talking about the backwardation in palladium, which you can listen to if you go to jtaylormedia.com, jtaylormedia.com. Click on the podcast page and you can hear uh, of what David has to say there. Also, uh, I am uh, writing a letter, uh, actually adding a company, uh, North American uh, Palladium Producer, in my newsletter this week that I am very excited about. And if you'd like to learn more about that, you're certainly free to subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, 
Now, today's show I've titled, Why Are So Few Americans Able to Get Ahead? Charles Hugh Smith, John Anderson, and Michael Oliver are the guests for this week's show. Despite the rah-rah about the ownership society and the best economy ever, according to Donald Trump anyway, at least uh, uh, the sobering reality is that very few Americans are able to get ahead in terms of building real financial security. Why, if the economy is so good, as President Trump suggests, and virtually all his supporters on Fox News tell us it is, why then are there so many young people, such a large percentage of our population of young people living in their parents' basements? Well, we'll explore some of the reasons why Americans, uh, Americans are no longer living the dream, the American dream that uh, has been a, so much a part of our society in the past. And uh, Charles Hugh Smith should have some insights into that. Uh, in fact, we're uh, basing our discussion in part on a paper that he wrote on that very topic. One junior exploration company that I have very high hopes for and one of my personal top holdings is Triumph Gold. This company's district-scale project already has a gold-equivalent resource north of 4 million ounces and three different deposits. However, it has recently discovered what looks like a very large gold-copper porphyry uh, deposit that has many of the world's largest base metal miners very interested in the project. And the company's largest shareholder is Gold Corp that owns just a whisker under 20% of the stock. In just a, a few minutes after a first commercial break, I'll be speaking with John Anderson, the executive chairman of Triumph, for an update on that company's progress. They've uh, had a lot of success last year in their drill program, and, and we want to find out what he's planning for 2019. But right now, I'm pleased to tell you that I have Michael Oliver with me once again to help us sort out the markets. And boy, they're looking increasingly volatile. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you. Now, Michael, uh, you're really focused on, and I, I think most people are really focused on, uh, the, uh, the the equity markets in the U.S., but I think you have some insights into why the equity markets are so important and how they might impact other markets, a lot of other markets. So could you comment on that today for us? Yeah, I think it's uh, they all feed back into each other to some in varying degrees at different times for different reasons, so the, the asset categories, debt markets, foreign exchange, stocks, and commodities. Um, and we thought two years ago that there was a tectonic plate shift beginning. And I think it, arguably it was. A, a gold bottomed, uh, yes, no, it has not taken off, but it is clearly well above its lows and it's lived above its lows and mm-hmm. built a what we think is, is the upper end of a base prior to a major upside move. Okay, that's step one. Commodities bottomed. Uh, some of them took off real big oil and copper and are now paying dues back on the downside, but still way above their 2016 lows. Even the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which is weighed down by food commodities, which we think is probably the best place to be uh, in terms of value and future percent gain, uh, is, is still well off its bare lows. Okay, so that, that category shifted. It's begun the shift. Dollar shifted. Uh, we, we got bearish. It hit $103.50 uh, dollar index back in uh, early 2017, excuse me. And uh, we get bearish in May of 17 when it came down to 99, and it's still well below there. It's having a big rally, but it's, it's broken in our view. Um, then you go to the debt markets, uh, the bond markets. We, they peaked in 2016 in price, low yields, mid-2016, uh, and broke down hard in price. Uh, T-bonds right now are 30-some-odd points, uh, points below their highs, and uh, you know, they're having a counter-trend rally right now, which I think is associated with stock weakness, and probably could see more of that, too. 
Now, and then the stock market was the dumb one. And it quite Mm -hmm. often is. It's the last one to finally move and say, oh, my goodness, things are changing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it behaves in a a panic way when it realizes the new reality. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, earnings or temporary things. I think it has to do with decades of of central bank manipulation of asset prices, particularly over the last six, seven years, since at least 2011 especially, where all the major developed market economies, central banks, distorted the cost of money and the quantity of money greatly. Mm -hmm. And they did it for a long period of time. And therefore, they built in major uh, investment distortions uh, by private institutions, corporations, and by governments uh, based on the assumption of what's the cost of money. Yeah. And you make a bad bet based on that information. And but it's mm-hmm. been over such a long period of time, not their normal uh, boom bust where they might distort something for a year or so uh, by uh, too low rates for example that stimulated the housing bubble. Uh, but it wasn't over 5 and 6 7 years. This is the biggest one of all. So they've created a time bomb. Now the stocks are finally starting to acknowledge, I think, not what's on the temporary horizon, not the good economy stuff, but the deeper problems, the debt problems, especially. And uh, that has, you know, that's not changing. Anybody looks at, you know, the government debt trajectory. It's, it, that's not changing, um, especially with Trump's military spending, you know. Sure. Uh, okay. So anyway, I think the stock market is now got the message, and I, we've declared it a bear, despite mm-hmm. the fact that you're not the, quote, orthodox 20% off the high before it's a bear type thing. Uh, we declared it a bear in October, early October, uh, and we hold with that view. There could be nice, fitful rallies, but uh, it's a bear, and we think mm-hmm. it's going a lot lower. The issue is the speed. Can we crash, or are we going to do a 2000-2002 type bear, or mm-hmm. 2007-2009 type bear, which was mm-hmm. a layered decline, sometimes sharp, but still much as exact in the move. Mm-hmm. Or we mm-hmm. can have something more efficient. And no. frankly, we're a bit mixed on that. It could be more efficient. But there's one mm-hmm. interesting thing that could happen here. If the stocks get a little shockingly weak here and take out the February low, which they've yet to do, we're 2,600 plus. If you get down to below 2,550, you're challenging the lows of the year. You take those out, that's going to be a big headline. And uh, I think it's going to upset Trump to some extent. And we know he's a deal maker, and he had something going for him because early in this process of the deal uh, tariff war with China, Chinese stock market was quite weak. Ours was not. And so he said, aha, I got them over the, over the barrel, and we're uh-huh. in good shape. Now suddenly his market is collapsing, and their market is firming. We're at points on the Shanghai Composite that if they go a little bit higher than yesterday's high on a weekly close, we're, we're frankly bullish for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's now got a problem with his market, and a lot of businessmen aren't real happy. In fact, yeah. a lot of his friends aren't real happy with this tariff thing. They did open letters in the Wall Street Journal. Okay, stock market could have wave effects for a lot of other markets, especially if he does a trade deal in the dark with the Chinese that makes them look good, makes him look good. Soybeans could take off, been a primary victim of this situation. Grains could be benefited largely by that. Uh, I also think it would help, uh, it would cause the bond, certainly Powell will also be affected by this in terms of mm-hmm. more rate, rate hikes. And if they let off on the rate hike bit, they back up just a bit or indicate pause, and I think they've already begun to hint that, 
if you subtly read the words. That will affect the dollar, and the dollar has had a counter-trend rally, largely due to the fact that we've had rate rises and Europe hasn't, and Japan hasn't. If mm-hmm. that changes, or the, the view is that the rate situation could change now because the Fed's going to back off and Trump's, uh, you know, et cetera, then the stock market events could have waves in other markets because it mm-hmm. causes Trump to do a deal that could help soybeans, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but right now, I think the main thing to watch is the S&P, because I think if you go just a bit lower than today's lows, they're going to take it off the page. And by not that, I don't mean a crash, but take out the Feb lows decisively, probably go down to around 2,400 area, wow. which is uh, you know about 8 9% below where you are right now, and do it quickly. And uh, that could cause a lot of wave effects and unsettled money moving, uh, specifically more into commodities, but especially gold. Mm-hmm. And, uh, silver and the miners. Uh, All right, Michael, let me, we're just about out of time. One thing I want to ask you before we say goodbye today is uh, equity markets tank. Are gold shares going to get taken down with them? No, no. I, 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 they've defied that so far. They made a low in August. Stocks made a high in August. Uh, the GDX has not gone below that low. And in fact, the GDX is rat hairs away from uh, propelling itself higher in another shoot. It had a good shot up off the August lows. And mm-hmm. it's con- gone into congestion. I think if you go about uh, about thirty cents above today's high on a weekly close, you're going to tackle on another several dollars on the GDX All right. and begin All right. so, you know, the upside. All right. So rat hairs are pretty small, I guess. So what you're saying is they're yeah, pretty rat close. Rat hairs to- like uh, thirty cents. You know, point thirty. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Oh. Okay, very good. Well, Michael, thank you so much. A very interesting, uh, colorful commentary today about the uh, interaction of geopolitics and markets, but certainly. Very fascinating, very interesting, and then all makes a certain amount of sense to me, that's for sure. Folks, uh, check out uh, Michael's work, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Thank you so much, Michael. I look forward to talking to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break. Don't go away, though, because John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold, will be with me uh, to give us an update on that company's progress, and they made a lot of it last year in their exploration uh, and their Yukon project. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Anderson. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time John Anderson. He's the chairman of Triumph Gold. Uh, John is, uh, as I mentioned, the chairman of the company, and he has over 20 years of capital ex- uh, market experience specializing in resource sector. He was the founder and financier of many startup companies with the experiences uh, that have uh, traded on, on the NYSE, the TSX, NASDAQ, etc., uh, he was a founder of Deep Six PLC, American Eagle Oil and Gas, as well as a founding general partner in Aquistone Capital LLC. It's a New York-based gold fund, and uh, John has raised more than $35 million for Triumph Gold, formerly a Northern Free Gold, a company that I had actually followed in my newsletter uh, under that prior uh, team. Uh, but uh, a lot of really good things happening under John, which is why I'm really Uh, Glad to have him with us uh, today. Thank you for joining me today, John. Jay, thank you very much for for uh, for inviting me for the for the radio program. Really, really good to have you, and it was uh, great to meet up with you in Vancouver a few weeks back uh, as well. Uh, And uh, I should mention uh, trade in Toronto under the symbol TIG. You can buy it down here in the states as I have under the symbol TIGCF. I have eighty-one million shares outstanding, about a rat's hair. Trading at a rat's hair, according to Michael Oliver, who just told us a rat's hair is about 30 cents. You're trading at 30 cents U.S., giving you what I think is a minuscule market cap of $24 million, one that I think our listeners should pay some attention to. And I think they will after they hear what you have to say about uh, about your company. Well, we talked to Tony Barossa, I guess your lead geologist, a really brilliant young Ph.D. geologist. Uh, that has I know you hold him in high esteem. He was on our show a couple of uh, well, about six weeks ago actually. Um, the The previous company that explored your Free Gold Mountain project had some success, no no question about that. I think and outlining more than I think it was more than four million uh, gold equivalent ounces uh, in three different deposits. But what they found then was certainly not economic, at least not for the prices at that time. But under your direction, you have assembled a new team of geologists, Tony Barossi, one of them, who have looked at Free Gold Mountain differently than, than in the past. Can you talk a little bit about the approach that your exploration geologists are taking uh, in exploring this uh, Free Gold Mountain project? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, the the introduction to the the project was was bang on. It it, uh, it it is a company that was more of a victim of timing uh, as opposed to uh, to uh, uh, results. Um, the company uh, used to be called Northern Free Gold, which you 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 alluded to. Uh, I was an investor in it, and in the bottom of the market in 2014, uh, when the company was uh, destitute. Uh, I came in and took it over with some other investors and backstopped the the financial uh, position of the company. So we cleaned up the balance sheet. And what the company has is a district size exploration project. Uh, 
Uh, it does have 43 101 deposits, three of them, uh, totaling, as you said, about 4 million ounces gold equivalent. But those are ounces of gold. Um, they're all at surface. They're easily accessible. They're, they will be mined one day. But they are ounces that are more relative at a higher gold price, so a very leveraged play. That's why we back this story. Um, the company had over 80 years of work done on it um, under Northern Free Gold and subsequently to me coming in, and we've now got a book value of uh, well over $55 million and a, a company that trades about $30 million market cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, when what we brought Tony in uh, independently, who was uh, on your program, uh, Tony... Uh, is our vice president of exploration, but before he became that, we asked uh, myself and one of our uh, institutional investors wanted to look at the project independently. So something that if you had a project that's five times the size of Manhattan and we're, we've been focusing on these low-grade deposits, what else is there? It's, it's a magnitude project. It's geologically uh, located along uh, the Big Creek Fault in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. It these very large deposits. Uh, Minto's mine, that ca- or, uh, Capstone Mining, they have their Minto mine that's been operating for years. You've got the coffee deposit that Gold Corp paid $520 million for just 40 miles northwest of where we are. You've got Western Copper that trades at $150 million market cap, and they're not active in their project. And we've got our mm-hmm. little, our rinky-dinky, embarrassingly market cap. How do we how how do we expose some value for this? What's the potential? So, Tony was hired independently before we hired him. Uh, now as our vice president of exploration because he came back with different eyes, and that's Jay. All it is is he had a different approach to it, and mm-hmm. he came up with all these different exploration potential. Um, uh, ideas that would be relevant at a low gold price. And so 2017, he was, uh, you know, we attracted Gold Corp to invest in our company at about 20% um, of the company at that time. Uh, expended three, uh, uh, well, they invested $6.3 million. We expended about three of that in the first year. And Tony followed up. And uh, when you say I hold him in high regard, he came up with five ideas and he hit on four of them. And, mm-hmm. and it was exciting from our standpoint. So uh, this year, 2018, we followed up on those four exploration ideas and came up with even more exploration ideas. But what was what's driving the price of the stock now? I know we're in a correction, but um, why it was performing this year so well is uh, Tony stepped outside of the zone and, and he saw this big... Uh, potential. I think he alluded to it in your last radio program as these rabbits at surface and these mm-hmm. low-grade things. But these are, are serious um, rabbits. They're half-million-ounce uh, rabbits. Mm-hmm. And his theory was underneath, just just looking at the age of the rocks and the different types of mineralization, there's got to be a source for it. And, and this year we confirmed that uh, with what's called this blue sky zone, which obviously created a lot of excitement west of one of the deposits, um, we came up with something. And and these were the highest grade, deepest porphyry drill holes ever drilled in the Yukon. And that's really what's uh, what's created the excitement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, what was it, like 150 or 170? I can't remember exact intercept, but well over a, an ounce of yeah. gold equivalent. Or, uh, not an ounce, so that, a, a gram of gold equivalent. 
Graham equivalent. So that was the, uh, originally the WOW Breccia, which is adjacent, and the WOW is W-A-U, which is tungsten-hosted tungsten gold. Those are the element signals or signs for, for tungsten gold. And we hit 140 meters of 1.33 grams per ton gold equivalent. That mm-hmm. was exciting. And then another uh, half kilometer away, we hit the uh, the blue sky zone. And we those were the deepest holes where we went down 600 meters. We had 200 and 30 meter, 300 meter intersections that head over a gram and a half of gold or a gram and a quarter gold plus copper of about 0.3%. So for the copper, you know, mining companies, they love this. This is over 1% copper equivalent, uh, gold equivalent would be two gram of gold. It's a gold bias system. And, and that's created the, um, obviously the excitement in the, in the stock price and, and with the uh, investor interest. But what's more interesting is those holes, um, when I said they were the deepest holes and the richest holes in a porphyry deposit uh, or a porphyry project uh, drilled in the Yukon, that's as far as we've gone. So subsequently to getting those results, uh, Tony engaged uh, a deep IP survey. Um, That's a deep radiometric um, survey that goes down uh, almost a mile. And we're waiting for those results, and those should give us a a pretty good indication of, of where the source for all these little rabbits are. And as Tony says, there's got to be uh, a big elephant down there. And these are the elephant deposits that make the big mining companies, big long life producers like the Freeport McMorans, those type of things. So when people have been saying this year that we turn the way, you know, geology's looked at the Yukon, it's really the depth of, of, of deposits that, uh, that are being discovered. And, um, all the kudos to Tony for coming up with the concept and proving mm-hmm. the concept right. Now we just want to yeah. take it you know, a couple steps further next year. So you think you're getting closer to the source of these rabbits uh, through this blue sky porphyry? Is that is that the theory? That's exactly it. That's uh-huh. exactly it. And then yeah. another uh, three miles away uh, over what's called the Kirsten Zone, um, We've drilled holes that are 600 meters deep. They didn't. They ran. They didn't run, run incredible grade like the um, blue sky did. But it's the same type of rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the theory is that this is one large system that sits under, a, you know, a six square kilometer, a really intense soil anomaly. And we know that um, you know through drilling that it's shallow and and you've got all these rabbits and hopefully this IP survey that we should be getting in the next month uh, will prove that this is a giant elephant that uh, that we're gonna we're gonna go after so the IP survey and the next within the next month you say and then you have some more drill results I think too yet from your uh, program last year right yeah correct As, as I said Tony came up with for Discovery last year and his crew. And it's not just Tony. Tony's got an incredible group behind him. Um, During the field season, we have over 30 people on site and we have uh, very qualified geologists. They're just led by Tony. Um, But um, following up on those four expression ideas, um, uh, one of the ones that we came up with was something that's found by the plaster. There's a lot of plaster miners on the property, and yes. uh-huh. when they, when they when they go through their property, they they go down to bedrock and expose geological structures, and then they mine them out and anything down to bedrock they get, and we get the deep rock stuff. Um, this Irene zone that was found by the plaster miners in 2013. Uh, was never followed up by previous management. 
mainly because of lack of funds at that time. However, uh, Tony uh, drilled it this year, and um, it had a, a strike length of about 140 meters, which I don't know how many of your listeners know what that means. It's, it, it's a, it's, it, a lot of mines are just 140 meters wide. Sure. Yeah, um, uh, we've we've extended it to 400 meters, and we're very confident that we've picked up that same vein uh, a couple miles away. And so we're going to wow. you know prove that theory up. And once we we get those assays back, we'll we'll publish the results from it. But um, there's a lot going on in this property, and and that's yeah. what uh, that, that's what's creating a lot of excitement. Not just the big porphyry; you've got all these high grade systems that are coming off, and it's really nice to see it uh, finally come together. Okay, so you still have drill results coming from your 2018 program. Uh, how soon do you expect you'll put together your plans for 2019? Could we look forward to that in January or something like that? And how soon can yeah. you start drilling in the Yukon? Where you uh, are? Good question. Real, re- realistically, yeah, exploration is a process. So as soon as you get your data, uh, you don't run around and start ordering drills, and you've got right. to analyze it. And this is what mm-hmm. Tony's done a very great job, you know, methodical job with Jesse and Emily Hale, who are involved, you know, in our team as well. And then, based once we get that IP survey, uh, we know that's going to be the big target. So the idea is that to drill the deepest holes ever in that Western Cordillera down, you know, hopefully a, a kilometer and a half. That's the goal. Um, but until we get that IP survey, we don't know. Uh, based on the other exploration successes we had that we've already released and, and more stuff we've got coming out, we'll put together a plan uh, over, the, over the holiday season with a, a plan of telling the market what we, uh, we plan on, uh, on doing, you know, call it late January. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as drilling, you can drill. Uh, 12 months of the year there. It's not as rem- you know. It's not as remote as most people think. We're actually one of the properties that's blessed with government infrastructure. We've got a government maintained road that goes to our property and through our property, and it's being upgraded by the federal government as part of their initiative to uh, to increase the infrastructure within the Yukon. Where uh, our road is actually being upgraded to a two lane, uh, 50 mile an hour road, um, gives us a huge advantage and and. Uh, uh, cost benefit when we're doing work there, uh, but until we get those results, um, all right. Well, uh, and budget, uh, you know, we, then we'll know what we're going to be doing. But as far as drilling, you can go twenty four seven there. It's just it, mm-hmm. it becomes a little more costly with heating your water, but you can't operate there all all yeah. time of year. All right, very good. Uh, well, so we'll be looking for how how well funded are you to. Uh, at this at this point in time, are you going to have to raise any more money anytime soon? Are you, uh, if you're no, drilling those really deep holes, they're going to be expensive. They are. They are good. Good. Good catch. Uh, yeah. So we've been drilling down to 600 meters. There are about 250 meters a hole to drill. When you get down below that 600 meter, down to a kilometer and a half, you're you're almost doubling your your cost, if not more. Sure. Um, but I think once we get the survey out and the plan, uh, raising the, 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 that money will not be an issue. And I think, I think if your, your listeners look at the history of this company, since uh, since I got involved, we have not had any problem raising money. We do have money now. We're not desperate by any means. Uh, we've got over a million in the bank. Um, I've got warrant holders that are willing to exercise warrants that would easily fund next year's program if we wanted to. Uh, but... I just like uh, Michael was saying on your on, on your previous guest. Um, yeah, it's a terrible market. 
uh, I'm not out having to raise money, and I'm fortunate yeah. I'm not having to raise money, and uh, I'm not going to dilute my stock, um, as you mentioned, uh, at a red hair price. Um, yep, absolutely. You know, well, look, uh, I want three, three just, right hairs. <laughs> we're just about out of time here, so I, I do have to. We do have to conclude now. But I, one thing I wanted to ask you: I think you probably work fairly closely with Gold Corp's uh, technical people as well. Tony probably interacts with them on a regular basis. Yeah, actually, we uh, we just had our quarterly meeting uh, just uh, last Friday, and went exceptionally uh-huh. well. I think you know they're not going to tell the public what they think, but I, if you look uh, at everything they've invested in the last couple of years, we are the only one that they're uh, they're above uh, water in, and and uh, and it's completely because of the uh, the technical program that Tony has been running and the project, and they've right. been very very they've been a fantastic shareholder absolutely fantastic yeah well having the right capital structure is very important and i know that's one of your one of your strengths is being able to attract Mm -hmm. money and the right kind of shareholders certainly the ones that are going to stay there for the building of something significant tony i want to thank you very much uh, for being with us we do have to go to break now and uh, look forward uh, to speaking with you and keeping up with your story it is my favorite, one of my favorites, one of my top holdings personally. So I'm uh, talking out of vested interest as well, John. Thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks, Jay. And I look forward to talking to you in the new year when we've got a, a lot more to talk about. Me, I'm really looking forward to it. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Charles Hugh Smith will be with us to talk about and to speculate as to why Americans are having more trouble getting ahead financially than they used to. So we'll be right back with Charles Hugh Smith. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol GOLD on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, I think for the second time, Charles Hugh Smith. Uh, Charles is the author, proprietor of the popular blog site off uh, of two minds.com of two minds.com it's really nice to know that we don't uh, all americans um, lockstep with the same thought process that some people actually think independently and certainly charles is one of them anyway anybody that we have on the show has that has to be a uh, a prerequisite that they are independent thinkers so um, charles uh, started publishing in 2005 uh, and he's a contributing editor to peakprosperity.com. We think very highly of those folks as well who they've been on our show in the past. Uh, Charles is the author of numerous books, including Why Everything is Falling Apart, An Unconventional Guide to Investing in Troubled Times. In his newest book, uh, Money and Work Unchanged, he addresses the idea of UBI, that's universal basic income, and starts by uh, taking a fresh look at work and its role in human life and society. Uh, and as well as our own, uh, our system of money. And that's certainly that's one of the things that we talked to Charles about. I'm just remembering now when he was on our show before, this whole idea, you don't have to work. It'll just give you a handout. I'm not sure that I would feel like I'm worth anything if I didn't work or try to earn my uh, living, but that's another topic. Um, so it's of oftwominds.com, folks. Go there to uh, keep up with Charles' work. Charles, thank you so much for joining me again. It's my pleasure, Jay. You know, um, you live in Hawaii and California, and I, I think you've had volcanic eruptions in Hawaii, uh, maybe some, some storms, some significant storms over there as well. And now in California, where I'm talking to you from, you're in California today, I understand, you've got, vol- you've got these fires, these horrendous fires. Are you anywhere near those, uh, those events in Northern California primarily, I guess, right? Right, Jay. Well, uh, we're about 150 miles away from the fires in the north, but uh, there's tremendous smoke. Uh, it's so thick down here uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area that you can't uh-huh. see the hills a mile away. Huh. Um, it's, um, uh, it's Supposedly, it's the equivalent of, of smoking uh, 10 cigarettes a day to just uh, breathe the air here. So there's a lot of people trying to buy those surgical masks and so on. Right, good. <laughs> But of course, we're we're not in danger of of having our our homes burned down. So of course, our hearts go out to everybody that that lost their home. And so, just breathing smoky air is, of course, nothing compared to losing everything. Uh, losing everything in in their lives, and uh, a large and growing number of people who have uh, who have died from these fires. It really is a tragedy. No no question about it. Um, I've titled today's show after an essay that you wrote titled, Why Are So Few Americans Able to Get Ahead? And in your November 9th missive, you noted that despite the rah-rah about the ownership society and the best economy ever, the sobering reality is very few Americans are able to get ahead. By that, I believe, uh, Charles, what you mean is to build real financial security uh, such that you don't have to really worry in your retirement about where your next meal is coming from. You have your basic needs taken care of. And beyond that, to leave something behind for your children. Uh, you mentioned that there are uh, three core reasons uh, that you see for the reason of this decline in living standards for a larger and growing number of Americans. Can you, can you uh, share them with us, what your ideas are there? I'd be uh, delighted to, Jay, and it's um, it's a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart because, um, you know, we can easily get um, 
obsessed with kind of dry statistics like mm-hmm. gross domestic product or you know what the stock market's doing today but really the economy is about it's a social uh, system right and so uh-huh. it actually it's it's our um, it impacts our daily lives and that's kind of my interest here so the three points are earnings uh, way our wages and salaries have not kept up with the rising cost of living and uh, you've discussed that in other programs, of course. Mm-hmm. Then the second point is whatever gains in wealth our, our economy has created have flowed to the top, uh, say, 10%. And within that top 10%, most of those gains have gone to the top, you know, one-tenth of 1%, mm-hmm. rather than to uh, labor, people working. And then the third point is... Um, that we've our economy's been financialized in the last twenty years to where all the incentives and and uh, the, the gains are flowing to um, these uh, corporations that that are basically monopolies or they operate like in cartels. And so there's just less money in the system for um, for people who are uh, not uh, owners of those uh, monopoly businesses, and I and I think um, of of healthcare. You know that many of us have a choice of like two or three insurers, right? And then mm-hmm. the prices are all about the same. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, so we call that a cartel. There's really right. not any competition. Right. So uh, we're seeing more concentration in every industry, it seems, of of uh, and less competition. Uh, there used to be a lot of concern about that. There used to be, uh, it, it was sort of a, a policy of Americans, uh, American policy to, you know, antitrust and so forth. We don't hear much about antitrust action these days, do we? No. In fact, I was trying to think back, and I think it's a generation or two since there was a, an actual monopoly or cartel that was broken up. And so it's like we've we've lost that, that part of um, the American uh, value system. You know, uh, Amazon is moving uh, one of their offices, a big office. They're going to create a lot of jobs here in Queens, New York City, where I live, and also down outside of Washington, D.C. And I think it was somebody, I don't know if it was on Tucker Carlson's show or some show I saw recently, they were speculating as the reason that Amazon decided to come to a couple of the richest cities in the country rather than in the Midwest and other places and this particular person, I don't remember who he was, suggested it had more to do with access to the people in power, to the money and to the people that make the laws, so that uh, there could be the influence. And if there's a need to go down and see a powerful senator or congressman, uh, you know, you could easily get there and do it. Or if there was a need uh, to get to the money people in New York, you're right here, right where they are. Uh, and so I'm wondering uh, if if that isn't part of what's going on, is just simply the concentration of wealth and then it's very difficult for policymakers not to get involved in that and start to being to be influenced i mean so maybe there's a reason why there's not been any antitrust actions for a number of years i think you i think you pegged it um jay that um you know if you have tremendous profits like like amazon or many of the other tech companies or global companies and you're 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 raking in billions you can afford, uh, say, 20 or 30 million for lobbying or to uh, 
contribute to campaigns. That's that's peanuts to you, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But but those peanuts mean a lot to the politicians. So, a hundred million dollars still buys you a lot of of political influence in Washington. But that's peanuts compared to what corporations can borrow or or uh, rake rake in. Yeah, can you give us a sense? The middle class has really declined. Can you can you you know the, traditionally what the the idea of the American dream was to have your own home, a white picket fence, a dog and a cat, and two or three children, three or four children maybe. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of how much of decline that we've seen in the last 20 years of the American middle class? Some statistics perhaps? Well, Jay, that's um, it's a great topic. And of course, it's um, it's compli- complicated by a couple of different issues. One is that... Um, as we all know, those of us who who happen to be lucky enough to own a house mm-hmm. and we that we bought twenty plus years ago in one of these sort of bubble valuation areas of the country, like Dallas, Seattle, um, Denver, the you know California, lots of places in New York, mm-hmm. then we've we've we're the lucky few who who can see that we're our um, our assets like our. Uh, our homes have risen in value so much that we can say, well, you know, I can cash out and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do okay. But not everybody's been that lucky. So there's there's kind of a divide in the middle class. Those people that um, were fortunate enough to have either stock options granted by their company or that they bought a house long enough ago that they've got a, a gains there and then everybody else. And so that's one issue. The other issue is that wages, of course, haven't kept up. And um, if you go back far enough, then it, it looks like they should have gone up. In other words, the average wage used to be, you know, say 10000 a year, and then now it's, you know, forty or 50000 And you go, well, we must be richer, right? But of course, if you adjust for the cost of living, then it turns out we've more or less been flatlined for 40 years. So um, th- then the other factor I would mention here is that um, a lot of people had secure jobs, uh, Mm -hmm. say, 20 years ago. Now you pretty much have to work for the government to have a secure position. You know, you're not even sure, even if you work for a big uh, global company, you're not sure how you might get right-sized or downsized (laughs) in the next recession. And so that that insecurity makes it more difficult to hang on to your gains, uh, you know, as a middle-class person, that if if one of two wage earners, say, loses their job for a, a year or so, that that causes a, a huge loss of, of earnings, and then that triggers a, a loss of wealth, and people have to maybe sell their house, or they lose their house, and then, so it, uh, the, the way the economy functions now, it just, just creates a lot more difficulty for the middle class, even if your earnings are, are, are keeping up with the cost of living, it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting ahead. Well, and the cost of living, as it's measured by the government, is one thing, isn't it? I, I think that as I was reading some of your material, you may have some doubts that they really reflect the true cost of staying alive. I know certainly uh, one of the guests that I've had on this show in the past, John Williams, uh, believes that the real cost of living, if you use the same measure during as was used during the Reagan administration, where you kept the same items in that basket of, uh, of cost, that cost basket, now, we would be looking at something, inflation rates of closer to 10% than 2%. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? In other words, I get a Social Security payment now, and it's, I think, 1% or 1.5%, maybe 2% this year. 
I know that my cost of living has gone up more than 2% this year. That's what I believe is true living in New York City anyway. But to what extent do you think CPI numbers understate the real cost of living such that perhaps even uh, that the real situation is worse than what the statistics would suggest? Do you, do you think that's true? Yes, uh, Jay, I do, and and um, uh, based on uh, John Williams' work that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. um, there's another uh, another measure. In other words, we, we have to kind of try to find some measure, and so the Chap Chapwood Index attempts to measure apples mm-hmm. to apples, and by in other words, by taking a food item in in a specific city like New York City, and uh-huh. then measuring it from the, uh, the past. And so, like, how much was a pound of apples five years ago and, and four years ago, three years ago? And how much was it to rent a one-bedroom apartment and so on? So it's it's um, apples to apples in, in each city. So instead of lumping it all together like the, the national CPI, it's much more specific. And so that Chapwood Index has found... Uh, that inflation is 11% in New York, 12% in, in LA, 11% in Chicago, 9.5% in Houston. I mean, all the major wow. urban yeah. centers are seeing these kinds of increases. And of course, um, I think another element that's um, that's poorly understood, because of course, it just sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo when you're trying to um, sort this out, is the official consumer price index has uh, really understates these really big ticket items like uh, medical care. They're, they claim it's 8.6% of our, of our, our budget, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our household budget. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're self-employed um, or you, you know, you're in the gig economy and you have to you know, pay your own health care insurance, well, it's way more than eight and a half percent. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, it's it's it, for many families, including uh, mine, and it's like way over a thousand bucks. It can easily be over two thousand dollars. So, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a trickery, you know. And the same with education. If if you have um, kids in college, or you have nephews or nieces or grandkids in college. Uh, it, you know, we know that education is not 6.7% of a household budget with, with children in college because, you know, you're, 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 you have to pony up 10, 20, even 30,000 or more per year. That's a mm-hmm. huge chunk of the family income and or wealth. Um, and so that's, a, that's another way it's understated, you know, that the real world costs in these big ticket um, items are so much more expensive than, than what's um, included in the CPI. Yeah, and you mentioned that you, if you want stability in, in your work, a stable job, you almost have to go to work for the government. And the government has taken a much larger chunk of GDP than they used to, for sure. Now, I have to go back to uh, when I look at longer-term charts and I see this uh, departure from uh, you know, the middle class losing ground and the de- concentration of wealth at the top. Uh, it seems that through the 1960s, for sure, the 1970s, too, we had a pretty egalitarian income distribution yet. And I'm wondering, my own view is, and I, you know, this is a view based on anecdotal evidence, I think, uh, is that part of the blame, certainly perhaps most of the blame, has to do with our monetary system, a system, in fact, that allows the foxes to guard the chicken coop, perhaps, you know, the bankers create money out of nothing. And that was made possible when Nixon took us off the international gold standard in 1971. You'll start to see 
money being created out of nothing through the creation of debt, of course, most people don't even realize probably that money is manufactured in a fiat currency system by debt. When you take, when you make a loan, you've increased the money supply. A loan is made on top of a loan, on top of another loan, and you have this massive, mysterious creation of money that has nothing to do with reality, essentially. But we've seen a redistribution of income, and I know, Charles, I believe that you would agree with this, that Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71 in large part because he wanted to be free to finance uh, Lyndon Johnson's socialism, his great society, and to conduct the Vietnam War. Uh, and so, you know, we, we just, Nixon unilaterally just uh, defaulted on, the, on Bretton Woods. And we went to this floating rate system in which central banks created money out of nothing. Now, it seems to me, redistribution of income towards the people that are closest to the seat of power uh, might have something to do with uh, with this with the, what we're talking about now. Do you have any ideas about that? Yes, Jay, I I concur with your um, your thesis there, and I think uh, most of the independent uh, analysts who look at the economy also agree with you. And and the the mechanism is. Um, mysterious unless unless you're kind of close to the seat of power right like well why should this um idea that that money's created by credit why should it lead to these uh, rising inequality of wealth and income and so what happens is when you when you give the power to create money to to bankers and um then they can loan it to financiers and corporations at very low rates of interest that that we can't get the rest of mm-hmm. us right mm-hmm. so mark zuckerberg i think his mortgage is one percent or something famously <laughs> you know you go when one of our five million bucks and you're and you're already rich hey guess what you can borrow money really cheaply and so same with corporations they can sell bonds and so on and raise billions of dollars at very low cost well then that skews the whole system because the rest of us, we're outbid. We can't, we can't buy, uh, we can't compete with the super wealthy and the financiers because they have access to this, this cheap money in, in basically unlimited quantities. While we are going to pay much higher interest rates and we can only borrow uh, uh, based on our income, you know. And so that's how it goes. In other words, the, uh, the corporations and the financiers can buy assets that then generate more wealth at very low rates of interest. Well, we have to pay basically retail, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, um, and then of course, what? So that's the one of the key drivers of why assets have appreciated so much in the last decade, right? Like housing in many in many cities, um, the stock market soared. You know, bonds have have uh, appreciated, and so on. Uh, but but wages haven't kept up, so that that's another thing that that in the, we should mention. Of course, in the '60s and '70s, wages kept up with uh, the cost of living at mm-hmm. least at least more than they do now. And right. part of it was that that employers had to compete for for employees, right? And well, now their employee employers have um, they can go abroad. You know, so there's globalization. So now American workers have to compete with essentially the rest of the world. And then there's some automation. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was always automation, right? There were factories, uh, robots or, or equipment in the, in the 60s and 70s. But it's really gathered momentum now and it's starting to replace, you know, uh, white collar jobs as well as blue collar. And so the, 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 uh, the people earning their living are under 
these like triple whammy, right? They they've globalized uh, globalization. Uh, puts us in competition with a, a lot of people in other countries that have much lower cost of living. Um, uh, automation's pressuring us, and then the fact that we can't really borrow money or access all this 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 nearly free money like um, like the super wealthy can. So yeah. add those three up, and it's no wonder that the middle class is under siege. Yeah, and then the middle class too has taken on more debt to try to retain their living standards as they've lost it too to send their kids to college, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, Charles, we're we're basically out of time here. I, I have to ask you because I think the most important issue to this discussion is what should people do right now? Uh, perhaps take a minute. That's about all the time we have. What should people be doing now to try to protect themselves against these conditions that we really have no control over? Right. Well, it's it sounds like uh, just common sense, but uh, it would be always helpful to lower your costs, you know, of of, of living, mm-hmm. and uh, try to try to pay off debt um, and develop a side income stream if at all possible, and then uh, diversify assets if you if you have any. If you don't, try to save money and buy some assets, but to, but get a diversification of assets. Don't just have all your family wealth in in in, in the family home or in a stock portfolio or something, diversify, mm-hmm. because nobody knows what's going to happen. That's for sure, and I would add to that, uh, probably have some real money, gold or silver, uh, that can't so easily be uh, destroyed through inflation, through uh, taking it away. Well, uh, Charles, Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for your time today. We are out of time. There are a lot more things I wanted to talk to you about, so I'll have to have you on again sometime in the near future. Well, folks, that is, that's it for today. Next week, Richard Mayberry will be with me. Uh, and I expect Peter Talman, the president and CEO of Klondike Gold, and uh, Michael Oliver as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com.